We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness today is Finn Ballard, who is a trans man who lectures on gender and sexuality for CIEE Global Institute and IES Abroad Berlin. He's also a historian and a tour guide. Now, I believe there are two important questions that we need to ask ourselves when we begin to think about what makes life meaningful. And those two questions are, who am I and what are my values rather than those of my parents and my teachers and society in general? Now, in my experience, most people don't grapple with those issues until they're around 40. But I suspect that you had to face these questions much earlier than that. And so I'm sort of interested in hearing about your experiences and also discovering what the rest of us can learn from actually having to think about your identity. Let's sort of launch straight in. I mean, when did you first start thinking about that question, who am I? Hi, Andrew. It's really nice to be here with you. Well, that's a very pertinent question. I suppose I had always had with me the sense that I didn't wish to be socialized as I was, but I think I assumed that to be a universal experience. I didn't have any peers with whom to discuss it. He'd be open about talking about gender, but I knew that I didn't feel like a girl, let's say. But when do you start to realize your gendered identity as a child? I think not as a very young child, then everyone's sort of androgynous and kind of amorphous blobs. And then I suppose teenager years are traumatizing for many of us, but certainly around that time of entering puberty and realizing this was profoundly wrong. Because I can remember being about six at school and somebody brought in, an, uh, I was in an um, all-boys school, and somebody brought in an action man. And these were entirely new at this point because I'm three million years old. And I sort of, obviously, somehow I got the message that dolls are for girls and any boy that has a doll is wrong. And I remember thinking, oh, I need to diss this person and then I was, in fact, dissed back in return because this wasn't a doll. This was an action figure and it was man and it was man with a capital M-A-N. And I remember being sort of puzzled by all of that. So even pre-puberty, we're getting all these messages about boys and girls. I mean, how did you hear all these messages? <laughs> I think they're prenatal, to be honest, a lot of the time. Yeah, absolutely. This is still lived experience for you and for me. I see recently there's been some controversy about children's clothes, infants' clothes, baby grows, that have still these slogans on them about the future, you know, for boys, the future scientist or future genius, and for girls, the princess, or actually very often overtly sexualized infant clothes, which is another topic I think queer people are often accused of, particularly at this moment, because we try to hope that kids will become aware of their gender identity. And then the repudiation of that is to say, well, children don't know their identities and we're sexualizing them somehow. I think actually heterosexist culture does a lot to sexualize children and to confuse them. I, I think it would have been very helpful for not just trans children, but really any child. I, the idea that a child could question their gender and then nevertheless stay absolutely within it, well, what harm has been done? Uh, they've opened their minds a little bit. And that we still have these colossal pressures and these dichotomies. I also didn't want to play with action figures or cars, you know, so I wasn't a very, very boyish boy in that sense. And these, like I guess, say, polarizations or dichotomies or this binary is also very unhelpful for us. But yet we continue to replicate it, even though actually it harmed us, we still do it to our children. It's strange. My niece, with her first child, decided she didn't actually want to know the gender. And she would be surprised when the child arrived in the world. And living in Berlin and meeting lots of trans people, you and I, we, we know each other, don't we? I said, oh, well, the child can decide what gender it is when it's old enough to do it. And my niece, who lives in a small town 
actually a village in Middle England, looked at me as if I'd arrived from a different planet when I made that suggestion. All right, so you have some progress there with not putting on these prenatal assumptions and painting the room pink or blue, but yet it gets so far. It's still, it got somewhere. That's also something, I think, to derive optimism from. At this moment, though, there are acres, thousands of them of wildfires in California because of a gender reveal party that sparked an enormous forest fire. So we're still doing that stuff as well. You know, we're still blowing things up. You know, when we discovered if our child's going to be pink or blue, we're still there. So what was it like going through puberty for you? It was pretty difficult, but I also grew up in a certain cultural context in a conservative place in Northern Ireland at a very particular moment in time in the 80s and 90s in which there wasn't much room for talking about gender. At a moment when, if we think about queer sexualities, it was still illegal ostensibly to talk about them uh, as a legacy from the Thatcher years. So there just, like I say, wasn't this discussion. So there was a quite profound loneliness in that. I'm also an only child, you know, I suppose that uh, is significant too. But it was tough. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, I think everyone has a hard time going through puberty, but for the trans kid, it can be, of course, especially traumatizing for someone non-binary. My body changed in ways that I didn't want it to, but I didn't know an alternative. I didn't think that I would become a boy when I hit puberty. I just didn't know what to expect. And it's not only the physical transformation, the change of the body, menstruation, but also the assumptions that are then laid upon a child as the child comes to maturity. There's a certain tomboyishness phase, I think, in which it's still acceptable for, let's say, girls to perform a certain juvenile masculinity. But then these assumptions of what that girl's going to grow up to become are suddenly loaded upon someone. And that's, I think, traumatizing for a lot of girls who aren't trans-masculine at all, right? It's nevertheless a huge trauma for them when they have to put away these childish things, right? And boys don't have to do that for a much longer time than girls. What was difficult about this transition? Yeah, growing breasts, the menstruation. But like I say, also being in a female environment that... I went to an all-girls school until I was 18. We were educated in very particular parameters. Also, as the only child, as ostensibly the daughter, of course, inevitably, there were um, responsibilities that I could not fulfill, right? I wasn't going to become a mother. I wasn't going to produce children. Not to say that as a trans person, I couldn't do that or adopt one, but I didn't want to go along that path anyway. So there's the gender element, and then there's the general personality element, right? I wanted to issue a lot of the heterosexist culture in which I grew up, let's say, inevitably, through no one's fault. It's just what we replicate over and over. But it's not right. It's, it's not right for everyone. It's fundamentally flawed. And so many people bear trauma and scars from it, like I say, even if they are not trans and even if they are heterosexual, it nevertheless traumatizes. And what did it do to your mental health? was not great. I think that I clearly, as an adult, could look back to myself as a child and diagnose myself quite easily. I had very bad obsessive compulsive disorder and enormous amounts of tics and uh, preoccupations, which I think I'm not the mental health expert here, were some kind of effort to regain control of the situation in which I felt pretty much out of control. So that was tough. Again, not every trans kid goes through that, but of course many will suffer from some kind of depression, some kind of mental health complaint. Inevitably, right? It's so difficult. It's, it would be impossible not, I think, to have your mental health affected by it. And so where do you find the strength to challenge the values? And Northern Ireland is a very, very conservative place. Also quite, I mean, religion is sort of pumped through the air as well, isn't it? How do you find the strength to challenge other people's views and values. I don't know that I did, to be honest. I think I left and escaped. <laughs> when I was a teenager, I moved to England. There I had some access to a queer community at university. I joined the Pride Society. But then the assumption upon me was that I was a lesbian and I didn't identify like that at all either. Tried to identify like that for some time. Since leaving Northern Ireland, and it's not only about Northern Ireland at all, I think that I could have had this experience in any place in the world. But I've returned there. My mother does very profound work there, uh, campaigning on behalf of trans people. So there's really a lot of movement happening there. My responsibility for that or contribution to that is extremely limited. I did go back, though, a couple of years ago and gave a talk about trans history to the Lord Mayor of Belfast, who was at that, that time. He's no longer the mayor, uh, an extremely 
transphobic, bigoted person. So that was quite a challenging experience. Gosh. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> wasn't easy. <laughs> so what did you discover about trans history that you hoped would help change his mind? Oh, so much. Trans people have been around since the beginning of people, you know, and we have anthropological evidence of that. And I, the concept of transition is a very modern one, as in undergoing a surgical or hormonal treatment. And I think often we still see that from a binary standpoint. We still see that as men wanting to become women or women wanting to become men. And if we could try to, in some way, deconstruct those constructs, if you will, then we would see that from the very beginning of time and in so many pre-colonial societies, there have been all manner of understandings of different gender identities. And they were not categorized in the way that we categorize people today. But certainly we know from evidence of grave sites, for instance, that there were female bodies in male environments and vice versa. We see male bodies, for want of a better phrase, are buried with the standard customs of female burials. So we understand that there were genderqueer or non-binary or trans people around, but we just were not really taught about it. And then in terms of an archive of evidence of trans people. Again, these are really troublesome concepts, right? We were around before there was rhetoric or medical understanding of transgenderism or transgender identities. But certainly in Berlin, specifically for the last century, we have evidence of that, right? We have the Sexual Science Institute that opened here 101 years ago, uh, speaking in 2020. And uh, they did an awful lot before things went very badly wrong here in 1933, let's say. But there, if we need empirical evidence, let's say, if we need data, there we certainly have it at least from 100 years ago, let's say. And how do you feel when you read that information? Oh, it's incredible. It's, it's incredible. I, you know, I take this queer history tour with LGBT people and their friends, right? Anyone who's interested can, of course, come along. And it's very profoundly moving for a lot of people to discover, often on the tour, you know, it's the first time they discovered it. Or in the classes that I teach, that as queer people or allies of queer people, they have ancestors. And that's something which I think is is often stripped from us, right? This is this idea promulgated, perpetuated by this so-called gender critical movement, which is a transphobic way of thinking that says, well, we've just arrived and where were we 10 or 20 or 100 years ago? Well, we were always there. We just didn't have any means to articulate ourselves, didn't have language to describe ourselves. And apart from this one particular place in Berlin for a decade and a half, we didn't really have a place to go. So it's a very liberating feeling. It's also profoundly sad because we know what happened to many of those people. Uh, in the Nazi era, but we understand that they did exist. And so to discover ancestors is a very profound thing. Also, I think most families have that story, you know, about the most likely queer aunt or uncle, but often their queerness is somehow rendered to be different than being about gender or sexuality. It's some other kind of queerness. And then in a very basic sense, queer people historically didn't tend to have children telling their stories. So we lost a lot of that information or that sense of connection to the past. And so to rediscover it in some way, to learn about a trans man from 100 years ago is a, a very liberating experience, definitely. So how old were you when you began to say, I'm not, I'm not who you think I am? I think always, you know, again, like I say, in very earliest childhood, I didn't really understand what I was thought to be. Give me an example of that so I can really get... I can think of, for instance, going to the hairdressing salon and bringing in a picture of of Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys and saying, I want to have this haircut and getting this kind of dreadful bouffant female version of this bowl cut that I wanted to have, you know, it was just this lack of comprehension. And and I, in turn, had a lack of comprehension. I didn't understand why that wasn't possible or why that was so difficult. And then a little bit later, of course, again, attending formal functions and realizing, well, now I'll have to wear a dress or I'll have to wear some kind of plum colored trouser suit, you know, which I absolutely didn't want to do. It's just enormously stressful. And it left me very dissociated. And very, very quiet. I didn't, I didn't really have, I didn't have any language. What could I say? I couldn't explain it. So I just was kind of rendered mute and went along with it. You know? and what do you mean by disassociated? I mean, this kind of bell jar feeling that Sylvia Plath describes, right? To discuss just general teenage angst that you're there, but you're not present. There's something in between you and the rest of the world. It's a very profoundly lonely feeling. You're looking at things behind this glass screen, she says. There and not there. Yeah, dissociation, you know, I was very unable to express my feelings. So I just 
tolerated and became quiet. And then things don't change, you know. But what could I say? I'm a boy. Who could have understood that? That was not what I was. So then I had to be a girl. But again, these constructs are not helpful for so many people, even if they are not trans people. Still so many assumptions put upon them of the means by which they'll behave, what they'll aspire to in their lives. What's acceptable? Topics like anger, that all sorts of people are not allowed to be angry. Certainly women are not allowed to be angry. If they are, they're lampooned for it. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I suppose the stereotype would emerge that trans people are perpetually angry and we're not, but I think they were often quite exasperated, quite tired. And it's frightening. You know, if you ask me about milestones in my personal life, I remember very clearly watching the movie Boys Don't Cry, which was released in, I think, 2001, if I'm not mistaken, but it's the first mainstream movie about a trans person. With Hilary Swank, so was not a trans actor playing the part, but it was about a trans man, Brandon Tina, in, I believe, Nebraska in the USA, Omaha or Nebraska. And it's a, a true story of how this person was eventually murdered, you know. And I watched this and found this incredibly powerful feeling, oh, this is a person who did this and I can also do this, but then the ending, you know. And this is the other side to that story of discovering ancestors. Often we discover them because of some record of their persecution or their, yeah, the tragedy that befell them. That's hard too. So this is a, a journey you want to go on and you're being told that the end of the journey is destruction and alienation and being cast out. Potentially, yeah. And it's so important to tell those stories. I'm so glad that a movie was made about Brandon Tina. But yes, when this is the only point of reference which you have, it's very, very frightening. Do you remember walking out of that cinema, how you felt? Yeah, I remember feeling very discombobulated and very excited, anticipating that possibly I could also live as a man or as a boy. And then I was not so young, you know, I was already at uni, so I was certainly 18, 19, something like that. If it's 2001, I would have been 18. But excited, anticipating something different, but also very, very worried. Yeah, absolutely. And that is often the standard narrative. You know, you'll be alone. Nobody will understand you. Some terrible thing will befall you. Yeah, well, I was alone already. You know, I was present, but I was absent as well. So you have to live your own personal truth. All of us, right? The yeah. Sexuality or gender, whatever it may be constructed to be, whatever it may be. That's the only thing you can do. So there was, at some point, no longer any choice. And I don't think you can lead a meaningful life unless you are actually leading your own life. Right. But this is the problem. Many people swallow this down and they're just not able. And often that's due to this colossal burden of gendered expectation that we continue to put upon people, even though so few of us can live up to it. And I think it's not just about gender. It's, you know, you should go to university. You should be successful. You should have children, you should have money. Or I mean, our parents have all these expectations. They don't mean to be nasty, sure. but somehow inside they have an idea of how you should live, which often is a bit like them. Mm -hmm, certainly. And I think even those things that you cite, children, university, money, they're still gendered very often. The expectations are still very commonly different in regard to which gender the child might have or be perceived to have, let's say. Or the adult too, you know. We do treat people differently on those grounds and it's still perfectly acceptable to do so. And that's a problem for sure. How did you go from being discombobulated about the idea to actually diving in? Yeah, this is a story too, because at that time, I didn't know that I knew any trans people. I always say that I'm sure that I did know some people who are later on you know, later on transitioned or who had transitioned and I wasn't aware of it or who were non-binary. It's not that trans people are necessarily visible. But as far as I'm aware, I didn't know anyone with whom I could talk about this. Then I had a very profound conversation with a lecturer of mine who gave me this novel, The Well of Loneliness. Oh my God. <laughs> Which again, by the title you can guess, is not the most uplifting. No, no I, I remember reading it yeah. and thinking... Well, they didn't need to worry about banning this book because if you gave it to anybody, they, nobody would want to go down that path. Seriously. Yeah, I mean, the book was burned at the ports when it was shipped in, you know, the backlash to it was colossal. But my lecturer presented this to me, yes, as a tragedy, but not as the lesbian story it was cited to be, but as a story of someone like me, of a trans-masculine person. So again, mixture of a feeling of excitement, liberation, connection with 
great anxiety, let's say. That was a profound experience. Then watching the movie was another. And then going online and discovering that there was this burgeoning community. It was much smaller then, but there were you know, chat fora, web pages, just a few for trans people. Nothing like today. Nothing like the diversity of expression you can see today. But I started to connect with people online. And how was that? Oh, it was fantastic. Yeah, really, really profoundly helpful thing um, in terms of accessing information. Like, where were the gendered identity clinics? There's one in the UK at that time. Who could I? To whom could I speak? You know, how could I speak to a GP about this? And then it was a matter of going to the GP and saying, "Well, I wanted to undertake this medical transition," and people just not knowing about that, even in whatever that was, 15 years ago. It was not so long ago, but it was still really an unusual thing. I was one of the first trans men, at least in the UK, to take the kind of testosterone that I do. So I was also kind of a guinea pig in that way. But I started eventually. I went to the uh, I went to the clinic in London, you know, I got the prescription. And then after that, it was not so complicated. But to get that prescription was colossally difficult. A lot of psychological evaluation, a lot of proving myself, a lot of waiting, patience, stress, you know, that's mm -hmm. tough. And so if I had met you in this period where you were investigating and I'd said the question, who are you? How do you think you would have answered that question? I think I would have at that time identified myself simply as a boy. And like I say, it was a young man, you know, frustrating for me that I wasn't seen that way, that people didn't seem to understand that. So again, there was this feeling of disconnect, but that's how I would have identified myself, I think. And that's how I was presenting myself to the world, you know. And whatever that means, clothing, haircuts, you know, the, the gendered attributes that someone might have. But yet still, my identity documentation didn't correlate to that, right? Two different things. Essentially, yeah. I mean, I was teaching at the uni. My students thought of me as miss, even though I was presenting. But what could I tell them? I couldn't tell them otherwise. I, again, didn't have the language, didn't know it was possible to tell them otherwise. So how old were you at this point? And my 20s, you know, I think I started, it's funny how these things were so important to you in the moment you could remember every detail, you know, and then the, the, it just disintegrates from memory. I think I was about 25 when I started with hormone therapy. How did you tell your mother, this is my identity, I am a boy? Gosh, I wondered if I can remember that specific conversation. I think I felt that it was necessary to tell people when I started to undertake, like I say, the medical treatment and I knew that I would change so in a way I think I left it until the last moment like my voice was going to break or you know something like that I don't know how much it broke but it got a bit deeper and then it became kind of incumbent upon me to tell people but again I just couldn't really understand why this was a surprise to anyone you know it seemed so logical to me it seemed like now I was just going through my puberty even though it was belated. <laughs> Did it change you going through puberty for a second time? I don't know it's so hard to say. I suppose so. There's the neurological argument about which I know very little that your brain structure will change with the hormones and that will alter your character inevitably. I don't feel that any really profound changes happen. Some in terms of characteristics, I mean, just, just sort of feeling more content, right? Like some trans men say that they become more aggressive or more, let's say, masculine. And I didn't really feel that. I feel really quite comfortable being quite soft and quite, I would say, effeminate more than feminine, but being somewhere in the middle, let's say, as well. I think a lot of trans people undergo that experience. Like there's the sense to which you have to ape a male stereotype in some way, and then you become actually more comfortable. <laughs> you don't have to do that anymore. I had that experience with my numerous uh, psychotherapists with whom I had to have my assessments and interviews, you know. In, in what way? Ah, that's what they expected. I mean... <laughs> so you had to suddenly put your legs wide, totally. did you? <laughs> like roaring in a motorbike. <laughs> yeah, and they were very surprised as well. I mean, they were asking me questions in the end, you know. But their questions to me were such like, there's such things as, you know, do you think that the television is broadcasting secret messages just for you? I mean, there's all, <laughs> the whole set of assumptions that actually we're just people with other kinds of issues with mental illnesses. And like I say, look, many trans people are depressed and have other manifestations of mental health problems inevitably somewhat, especially when you're in this very frustrating moment when you want to begin a hormone therapy and you have to undertake all these assessments before you can. And there's every chance that someone will just tell you, no, you're not allowed to take these hormones. That's a very real possibility. And very often the reason for turning someone down is that they don't seem to be 
masculine enough or feminine enough, depending on which way they're going. It's not advisable, and I would still not advise someone to go into one of those assessments and say, well, I'm a trans man, but I'm gay, or I like to wear nail polish. You know, I wouldn't advise it still. It still points against you. So you can't be a trans man and gay? Sure you can. But I think, again, it still works against you. And I have anecdotes from friends of mine who've gone through such experiences. Oh, well, in that case, you're not really a man. Then we should rehabilitate you to become a woman, unlike men in that way. I mean, also cisgender gay men say that to me frequently. So so tell me what cisgender means. Ah, sorry. Cisgender as in (laughs) not transgender, right? So to use the term cisgender is almost to render everybody equally normal and equally strange. So, of course, you could just say men and trans men. Yeah. But trans men are men if they identify as men. I don't particularly identify as a man. But certainly then you want to, like I say, make equally normal and strange the experience of being a man who isn't trans, right? So why not say there are different kinds of men? So cisgender just means... You're born male and you're comfortable as a man and you grow up as a man and you're a man or woman. You know, to be cisgender means not to be trans, to be comfortable in your birth gender. Right. I think, to be honest, a lot of people are on some spectrum in between. But okay, these are the terms that we use, cis and trans and non-binary. And how does gender fluid fit into that? Yeah, gender fluid is a little bit like a non-binary identity, like I say. So feeling that you're not totally male or totally female or feeling that that fluctuates on a given day. You might feel more masculine or more feminine. It's a very liberating thing, actually. You know, and I think, again, a lot of gender fluidity is not necessarily visible. You could have someone who looks to you like a totally binary man or woman, but they don't necessarily identify as such. They might dress and act in a certain way, speak in a certain way, but yet they would be rather they than he or she, let's say. They is a common pronoun for non-binary people. And why do you think people get so upset about this? Because thinking about America, they got upset about um, having people of a different colour in the bathroom and they were in the same toilets as them. Then they got worried that there were going to be gays there. And now they're worried that there's going to be trans people there. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Why are we so frightened, do you think? It's really interesting that you take the bathroom story, actually. There's clearly this fear. I don't know how real the fear is because it's groundless and how manufactured that fear is, but it's clearly present of predatory behavior. I mean, it's quite amazing to think who's made uncomfortable going into a bathroom, right? The trans people or the non-trans people around them. Clearly the trans people, you know? Imagine someone almost sticking their head under the door and saying, well, I'm just checking your genitalia so you won't make me feel uncomfortable. Checking that you're doing the right kind of performance in this private space. And I have a lot of problems with talking about the bathroom debate, as it's so-called. I don't see how it can possibly be a debate, but it also aggravates me a lot because in the end we come to talk about excretion we come to talk about this really base topic and i think is that to which we can aspire is that to what we can aspire urinating and defecating it's it's embarrassing to me it's very profoundly sad and again this is completely groundless who is well i won't start on who's attacking people in bathrooms but it is not trans people let's put it that way you know And yeah, again, it's all based on this fear. It's based on this notion that trans people are predators, that we're interlopers, that we're lurking around the corner to snatch you. But is that just we're projecting our fears of difference onto you or people like you because you're the fear of the month, so to speak, or the fear of the decade? To a degree, I think... There is a fear there. So it's very hard to engage with fear, no? It's very hard to say to someone that their fear is groundless. You just have to exist and hope that you inspire them somehow to debunk their fears. But is it really fear-based? I'm not sure that it's really fear-based. I think fear sounds more legitimate than saying, well, it's just hate-based and it's prejudiced and it's um, deeply sad that people still hold those opinions. But I think that they are eroding and I think they hold them less and less. You know, Like I say, the more... Like I said, it goes two ways. No? The more visible that we are and the more present that we are, the more hopefully those things will disintegrate. On the other hand, the more visible and present we are, the more backlash we 
the loss of experience, as is clear at the moment, you know. Uh, this is a very difficult moment for trans people. Did it help with your transition to being a trans man living in an entirely different place from where you'd been beforehand? Definitely. I mean, first of all, the fact of just moving away rendered it less likely that I would have to have all these conversations all the time. But moving to Berlin specifically, you know, just because here I learned so much and I continue to learn so much just to have the privilege of learning from the people around me who really far more radical ideas than I had when I first moved here. So I've definitely shifted my perceptions a lot just in those encounters. Yeah, I mean, the rhetoric at the time when I started with the hormones was still, you have to kind of go live in a log cabin and then return and just be a different person. You, know, oh. you can't really undergo this in society. You know, it's too difficult for people. They won't understand it. And I think hopefully... Doctors aren't telling patients that any longer. But that's certainly the rhetoric to which I was exposed, you know. It's better to just go away for a couple of years and then pop up somewhere else and not tell people that you're trans. Because when you tell them that you are, you have to keep telling them and talking about it and explaining it. That's what I understood and that's what I tried to do, you know. I tried to live then as a heterosexual man. I mean, I passed as a man. I had a female partner. Yeah. And I realized, gosh, I can't do this very well either, you know. I mean, I kind of lived in every category of the limited panoply that we have, you know, ostensibly heterosexual girl, I guess people thought that I was one and then homosexual woman and then heterosexual man and now certainly very queer man, you know. Right. Actually, I'm not really, I mean, queer is the best word for me, but this heterosexual, homosexual, male, female business, I don't really correlate to any of it. But yeah, living as a heterosexual man for a minute is an enormous pressure as well. Enormously difficult, enormously performative. You know, I couldn't do it at all. So that didn't work at all. And then I moved to Berlin, really. And that's changed everything for me. So do you feel they they said don't tell people? Yeah, definitely. And my guess is, because that was the when we met, that was more or less the first words out of your mouth to me was that you were a trans man. It's so important to me now, yeah. So we call this going stealth or being stealth. And for many people, that's the path on which they go. Again, I, I would never want to judge them for that. You know, it's their decision. They're a binary trans person. So they're a man and that's it. I don't feel the way personally. Sometimes it's just not safe for them to be out as trans. They just don't want to be. Mm. You know, this is all perfectly legitimate. But then you don't, uh, you don't have the same, for me personally, I would not have had the same authenticity of a connection without telling that story. It's very important. I have this privilege now, you know, I don't have to tell people, but I choose to tell people. Because I think you have to be authentic to have a meaningful life. Absolutely. And it's part of your lived experience. I would be on tours, for instance, and enormously stressed because a member of the group had asked me, they'd come from my home country and they would start to ask me questions about to which school had I gone, you know? <laughs> And I really just didn't know what to tell them. I mean, I would they just wouldn't make know it that it was a girls only school. Totally. I mean, I caught myself in lies as well. I went to a girls school that was a boys school across the road. And sometimes I would tell them I went to that school. Yeah. And then they would say, oh, did you know this person and that person? You know, was, was Nigel Edwards still the headmaster? And I would get so confused in my own nonsense. But I just was too nervous to tell that person. And why should you have to tell everybody as well? Yeah, it's burden of that experience in a way. I think because I live in colossal privilege, I can say that it's my responsibility, but I never want to say that it's every trans person's responsibility, you know? So, I'm not at risk. So from using the famous categories, you've done heterosexual woman. <laughs> yeah, all of them. You've done, you've done lesbian woman, you've yeah. done heterosexual man, and you've done gay man. Something like that, yeah. What have you learned about the world from this? A lot, but I'm still the same person inside, you know. I remember when I was at school, I had the Backstreet Boys on my school books as well, you know. I had my crushes on them. And I remember once going to the toilet, talking about toilets in school, and seeing someone had written on the wall, Emer, it was my birth name, we were talking about whether we would use it, and I've just used it, is a gay man. And I remember sitting and looking at this and feeling everything was kind of disintegrating around me, like maybe it's true, you know, because I really had a crush on Nick Carter, but yet I didn't feel like a girl. So it's very confusing. And again, why does it have to be so confusing? My goodness. I think kids and I are much less confused because they're growing up without so many of these rigid categories, you know? So I think I learned a lot. But walking down the street today in Berlin, that everybody will think you're a man. Yeah, nobody knows now. Having actually been a woman, 
Yeah. You can empathize more, I would imagine, with what it's like to be a woman walking down a street than I can. Definitely. Because I have never been down that street. Definitely. Do you think you as a man behave differently from the way I might do or my friends might do? I believe so, but I don't think that that necessarily has to be a difference rendered in are we cis or trans, you know? I think it's just, again, because I lived that experience, but also because I study that experience in the sense that I teach gender and sexuality, and I'm trying to communicate to kids, students of all genders about feminism, you know? I'm trying to help the young men that I teach to not necessarily be gentlemen, but to be gentlemen, you know, to to kind of debunk some of their notions of patriarchal connection to other people. For example, right, a really good example is, say, seeing a woman struggling with a suitcase, you know? Do you walk up and kind of wrestle it from her and carry it up the stairs? Or do you go up and say, hey, uh, why don't we carry it together, you know? And I certainly have had that experience too. I mean, I did that recently. I saw someone struggling and uh, she got really aggravated with me, you know, because I came over and said, oh, do you need a hand? And I realized, oh gosh, I've just come up like this man, you know, offering to, and she said, well, it's heavy, you know, rescuing, exactly. And she said, it's going to be heavy. I said, yeah, it looks heavy. And she told me it's going to be heavy for you too then, you know, I can carry it by myself. Thank you. And then I realized, no, I've done it wrong. And then I said to her, I thought we could carry it together, you know, and then we carried it together. But this idea that, yeah, I would come and rescue her. Or when you see a woman walking alone, like, do you run up behind her because you want to catch the bus or do you not do that? You know, I, I would really try very hard not to do that or try not to take space in quite the same way as many cis men do, you know. Because I've never thought of if I'm running for the bus, that might actually frighten somebody. Yeah, because you know that you're not a threat. Never Never occurred to me. Totally, because you you know that you're not a threat to that person. Yeah. But it's a profoundly frightening experience. I mean, being a woman is something to which I can't really speak because I never presented myself as one. But being someone who's androgynous, genderqueer, that's a lived experience of kind of perpetual fear of violence, unless you're in somewhere like Queer Berlin, and it happens here too. But I had it in Consul Estate Coventry, you know, and it was near daily vigilance. And that's very, very tiring, very exhausting. I mean, I had the experience too. And again, it's like trans tragedy stuff. So I don't like to dwell on it too much. But I I worked in a supermarket, you know, I lived in a consul estate and I had daily threats of violence and experiences of kind of ostracism. And it was very, very tough, you know. So I was so privileged and fortunate, you know, I got a scholarship. I was able to, you know, I just got so lucky and I was able to extricate myself. But we shouldn't have to extricate ourselves. And if we always do, I think things also don't change that much. We have to go back as, again, these rescuers, right? These representatives. And that's also very tiring and very burdensome. It just shouldn't be that way. I hope that it changes. But like I say, even here, Queer Village in Berlin, of course, there can be instances of, of homophobia, transphobia, it's, it's not perfect here either. But uh, it's a privilege for me. So I decided because I look like a guy, I have a beard, I pass as a guy, I will tell people as often as I can that I'm trans. And hopefully, now when I start a tour, even if it's a tour of a palace in Potsdam, you know, that's one of the first things I will say because I introduce myself to people. And how has that changed your life? Oh, massively, massively, hugely. I feel much, I feel a lot of relief, you know. I feel like I'm not harboring some secret and I mean there's something didactic about it too like people ask questions and I help hopefully to enable them to understand and very often then they will come to me and say oh yeah it's funny but my friend's kid also you know they have some other connection right and maybe it helps them to see (laughs) I don't know that I'm the paragon of success but you know maybe it helps them to see oh this guy's doing okay you know you're you're not living in a ditch you're not dead you're not a crime (laughs) statistic you're here But by virtue of privilege, you know, I'm just very lucky in that regard, right? And that could easily have happened to me as well. And it happens to trans people and particularly trans people of color. You know, there I have, again, infinite privilege. And I'm a trans man and not a trans woman. And this world is made for men, you know. So I have that privilege as well, that experience of privilege on a daily basis, I think, as well. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. I hope that you're finding this podcast really useful and you'd like to become 
a member of our supporters club because your generosity helps me to do this program because it costs money to distribute it, to edit it and produce it. If you do join our supporters club, you get various privileges. One of them is that you can send a letter into our program. This one actually I've put together from one of my clients in the past. She says, I've been married to my lovely husband for almost 30 years and we have two children in their 20s. The youngest, our daughter, still lives with us. I thought we had a loving marriage. Okay, there have been ups and downs like every couple, but I don't know where to turn. My husband wants to be a woman. It makes no sense to me. I've tried to be understanding because I love him, but he can't really explain it himself. When I ask him to reconsider, he's adamant. This is who he is. Our daughter, who's always been a daddy's girl, is heartbroken. I tried to stay out of it, but I'm as bewildered as she is. What happened to the man we both love? How do I come to terms with this? Every time we talk, he says, I don't listen, but nothing he says makes sense. When I tell him my fears, he gets aggressive and shuts down. So, Finn, any thoughts on this letter? Oh gosh, so many... That must be incredibly difficult, you know, that's an experience to which I can't really relate. It must be profoundly disrupting, to say the least, to discover something about your partner that's so colossally different. And again, we said earlier, gender is still how we conceptualize the very foundation of identity. So it changes everything about the person in your understanding. I, I think that it shouldn't have to. Actually, this is still the same person, but I really can understand that it's very disrupting, alienating experience for the spouse. It, it must be very, very tough. I have a lot of thoughts, a lot of response that I could give. And I think not being a therapist, perhaps I'm able to say things like, I think that you should try this or... Yeah, you can say whatever you want. This is the privilege of being here today. Right. I mean, may I, may I have the letter in front yeah, of me? Sure. Actually? Because, thank you, already just some of the, the rhetoric, right? It strikes me. So first of all... I can really understand that it's very difficult to switch the way that you address someone and discuss someone to whom you've been married for three decades. But to me, I would now say, okay, so you have a woman who's married to another woman and one of those women is trans. So I wouldn't talk about this person as he, I wouldn't use that pronoun. I think it must be very tough to switch pronouns for someone whom you've known so long, but okay. So my husband wants to be a woman. I would try to debunk that. And I don't want to focus only on language, but the language of the letter also communicates a lot inevitably, right? So my husband wants to be a woman and your husband is a woman, right? Also, that's a really difficult sentence to say, my husband is a woman. It's difficult, right? It's difficult at first. And then you really have to say, my wife is a woman and you don't conceptualize your husband as your wife. Yeah. Right? So that's tough, but okay, is a woman. But I think what you're beginning to get at is that language is important. It's hugely important. But it does take a long time to change the language. Sure. But it does get easier, I think, is a message we want to give. It's a really good starting point, though, because it helps to recalibrate that person in your mind. Then you say, that's a woman, that's my wife, that's she. If you're always going to think of that person as your husband and, and he, then, of course, she cannot progress. But it can't happen overnight. It must be very difficult. And then that makes you a lesbian if you're in a, it traditionally makes you a lesbian, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, again, these categories don't really help us. People are just people and we just love each other. This can sometimes happen, though. It's so fortuitous. I, I read a story this morning about uh, ostensibly heterosexual couple. Right? It just shows you as well how actually everyone in some way is defying these constructs all the time. The husband, let's say, said to the wife, I have a, a confession to make, you know, I, I believe that I'm a woman. And the wife said to the husband, well, <laughs> I think that I'm a lesbian. So <laughs> kind of perfect. You know, they both had revelations at the same moment. Look, gender and sexuality both are, I think, constantly in flux. And also that we have these monolithic ideas that you're with someone forever and they'll never change. That doesn't help us much either. It, it, perhaps this couple can stay together. Does it make the wife a lesbian? No, not necessarily. The, the wife is the person that she is and the, the husband who is also the wife is the person that she is. But okay, this is difficult. I understand the rhetoric would be very hard to shift. But I see this when I ask him to reconsider. Now, of course, of course, this person is defensive. If that's the approach, right, please reconsider. That's I can imagine again, it's really difficult, but that's not the most 
empathetic approach. So just help a little bit. Sure. This lady get into the, the headspace of her husband because actually getting to the point that you tell your partner, I think I am trans, I think you've probably done quite a bit of work on your own before you get to that Exactly. Point. Probably this person has had this with them for a very long time. She's probably had it with her all her life in some way and probably tried to obfuscate it swallow it down, ignore it, you know, and it's now most likely come to the point where she can't do that anymore. And maybe she's been inspired because of the increased visibility of trans people, but it's not that it would be something brand new, I don't think. It also could be, you know, that it's something brand new, but it's unlikely. I have one friend who went through a kind of spontaneous transition. I mean, she identified strongly as a man for half her life, and then as she tells it overnight, change. This is Gosh. possible. It's unusual that it's possible. But I think the first point is, is empathy for both. You know, again, it must be colossally difficult to be either of these people right now. My suspicion is that it's easier for her wife, as we're saying, to get help than it is for her to get help. Because That's also a problem. I suspect that there's plenty of people that her wife can talk to on the internet I wonder how many people there are in her position, our letter writer's position. Yeah, I think she can find them too. The experience of being a partner to a trans person and being a partner to a trans person who didn't acknowledge or know that they were trans is a commonality for sure. But yeah, you'd have to push a little bit to find the people. But it, it really depends upon the attitude of the letter writer. Does she want to do that or does she still want this not to happen? Yeah, and I think at this Pro probably point... Probably both. I think sure. on, I, the, the, the message I get from it is that on one hand, she loves her partner and she wants good things for her partner. But actually, she also doesn't want her own life turned upside down. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, it must be so difficult. And then there's the question of the ramifications, you know, what the neighbours might say in the friendship circle. It's really not easy. And it causes the breakdown of a lot of relationships, unfortunately. Even really tenacious long-term relationships often don't survive. Or they have to recalibrate into a friendship, you know? Do you think it would be that there's probably more parents of trans children who would sort of understand that sort of shock and having to come to terms with and the journey and they're probably more visible and more available. That's true, because it is such a generational thing, yeah. And so you'd be talking to somebody of a similar generation. Do you think that, I mean, obviously I'm not pushing stuff onto your mother, but if people like your mother got an email from somebody saying, you know, I'm the partner rather than the parent of, I can't get my head around this, can you help me? Do you think they would be likely to be positive and helpful. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You're absolutely right. It's more common, I think, nowadays that it's the parent experiencing that with the child. But it certainly happens. Yeah, it certainly happens. And I mean, I have to say, I think my world, the therapy world, could do more about it. And, you know, I'd love to say, go and see a therapist and talk about it. But the reality is, very few therapists will have had very many cases like this. I mean, I've been working with couples for 35 years and I've notched up in those 35 years three couples where one of them was transgender fluid, etc. So it's not very much, really. Yeah, I think the, the couples who approach a couple's therapist, probably it's often for different reasons. But I would imagine that if the transitioning partner starts to seek out support and includes her partner, right? Doesn't become really self-centered, as many trans people do, to be honest, then they should be able together to access this kind of situation in other people, right? And to talk to them about how they've dealt with it. I think one issue is, and I see that in the last paragraph too, that the transitioning partner becomes aggressive and shuts down. I mean, I also can empathize with that. It's a really difficult experience. You become very self-centered, you know, you, you think only really about the transition and how you can undertake it. I mean, I, I don't know that this person wants to undergo a medical transition, but if that is part of the story, then that's an enormous decision which occupies all your thoughts. So it can happen that trans people at a certain point at the beginning of transition, at least, are completely fixated on just being trans. You know, this is really all they can think about. And I can imagine this person feels like now she's made this 
declaration to herself and even to her partner. She wants everyone to accept it immediately and to, you know, join her in this experience, right? And it's not always that utopian. But I can understand the kind of selfishness in a way in the last paragraph that I see on the part of the transitioning partner and also the lack again of rhetoric, the dissociative feeling, the feeling of just shutting down, like it's very hard to articulate yourself. And, you know, I see also, again, the, the pressure. You, and how can you explain this? Stuff? It's very hard. Yeah, people just don't get it and they don't know how to empathize with it. Then you can't and, shut down. Yeah. And particularly if you've been brought up as a man, you're told to act rather than feel and think and talk. So you might be talking to somebody who spent their whole life moving forward rather than understanding. And then suddenly they've got this huge thing on their plate and it's a very difficult thing to explain yeah i mean think of all the trauma of a male socialization and of becoming a father and then think of a woman undergoing all of that you know very very difficult and not necessarily being educated in communication and that kind of socialization where there's access to discussion so shutting down is totally unhelpful but i can kind of understand it Asking someone to reconsider their identity is unhelpful, but I can understand it. I think that there's every chance to reconcile on it and to progress forward. It sounds like there's heaps of love. I mean, I thought we had a loving marriage. You still have a loving marriage. Not necessarily is the love over because one partner is trans. But again, this is the only way then for that person to live authentically. So if you want to love someone, you have to love all of the person. Amazingly enough, if you keep talking, you do find a third way through. At the moment, it sort of feels like there's just two versions. There's the trans woman's version and there's the wife's version. But actually, a third way will emerge if you keep talking. If you stay in the crucible of conflict for long enough, you hear each other and you generally tend to find there is a way through. Even the most difficult stuff, which seems really polarised, there is nearly always a third way, but it takes time. Absolutely. And I think that it sounds as if there's a bit of resentment right now on both sides, and that can dig you deeper into this groove where one is going one way, I don't want this to happen, so I'm going to resist it. And one is going the other, I absolutely need this to happen, so I'm going to resist anything that tells me anything to the contrary of that. So yeah, absolutely. They have to just talk and talk and talk until they can regain somehow this path together. There are resources, though, and I think the best thing to do is to just start by trying online. I would say if they don't have a local support group, there possibly is one. And many times there are support groups for trans people to reach out to other couples and to see. The problem is, of course, the source, because very often you have, again, this trans critical, it's called gender critical movement that will say that trans people will regret it and they will change their minds and they will want to retransition. And this sometimes even happens, it's true. These stories are very often promoted, even by ostensibly impartial or even liberal media. I wouldn't advise them to watch most BBC productions right now, for instance, if they're in the UK. But I would say try to find a support group in the area if that's not possible. And even if it is possible, reach out online. But as you say, exactly, that's the key to all of it. No talk to each other, but try to talk to each other, not at opposing standpoints, but try uh, to find I was thinking about talking about it with a third party. Somebody who can hold both of you and help you feel safe and accept both of your feelings, even though they're different. What's it like actually choosing your own name rather than actually being given it? Super. Everybody should do it, I think. <laughs> At a certain point, maybe everyone gets to be, you said earlier, 40. So, okay. So everyone get to 40 and then they can be asked, do you still want this name or do you want to change it? <laughs> That's a bit arbitrary. How, how did you change it? Ah, this is a... I mean, Not change it, sorry, choose it. Yeah, this is just a personal thing for me. I mean, Finn has now become one of the kind of classic trans guy names. So, is it? Oh, right. Yeah, it's funny. 15 years ago, it was Aiden, Braden, Jaden, Caden, Hayden. <laughs> it was all those names. And now Finn is very popular for trans guys. And Sebastian is very popular. Oh. Basti. Yeah, because we all watch the never-ending story. You know, trans guys of that generation, right? So we have these names that come from our right. cultural set of references. I was thinking of Saint Sebastian being... Oh yeah, that one too. Very queer, absolutely. Yeah. A very queer story. Yeah, it's interesting that there's this kind of repository. Jack is the other uh, very, very common one. A lot of trans guys I know called Jack. But the experience of choosing your own name is very profound, very exciting when you start to get that documentation in that name and 
be able to use it. What does thin say to you? Obviously, it has something. Yeah, again, this is just my personal story, but it it has a lot for me. Yeah, I mean, I had this name Emer before that's from Irish folklore, and I wanted a name from Irish folklore. So I wanted to keep that tradition and honor my parents in that way. If I had been born a boy, (laughs) born a cisgender boy, I wouldn't have been called Finn. But Finn was a name that really appealed to me because in Finn's story, so Finn is a character in Irish mythology, Finn McCool. And he is raised not as a girl, but he's raised in an all-female environment. And so he's a kind of feminist, I would say. And then when he's a young man, he undergoes all these trials and he basically undergoes a transition and he becomes, he changes his name. He's, he's not born as Finn. He's born with a different name, Jemna, which means something like steadfast. So I have a tattoo of this word Jemna because I really love this idea of kind of stoicism and being st- and just persevering, you know, which he does. And then he meets this older man who's a druid poet, warrior, and this older guy teaches him all these lessons. And I find that also very compelling because, again, you know, trans kids often don't have that experience, right? Of course, we have peers, we have mentors, we have authority figures and teachers, but they're putting the wrong assumptions on us often. So I find that a very beautiful narrative. And then he, when he grows up, fulfills this prophecy and becomes Finn. And Finn is this, you know, He's a wordier, but he's, again, he's a poet wordier and he embodies, I won't say gentle masculinity because he's doing a lot of warmongering, but he embodies something uh, of a different kind of man, you know, who's also a creative man and a poet. I find that very beautiful. Yeah, I love the idea of a poet warrior. Yeah, it's nice, no? I mean, I don't want to go to any wars. I'm really glad I don't have to, but... But we'll go to the poetry wars. <laughs> poetry wars I could engage with, yeah. <laughs> I'll start with a sonnet and you're going to have to top that. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Let's see how I do. But yeah, this idea that he engages with the stoicism and just keeps going. He's also kind of a trickster, which I find um, quite compelling. It's a lovely story that Finn builds the Giant's Causeway, which is this beautiful landmark Mm. that we have in Northern Ireland with all of these stacks of stones. And people didn't understand how it was formed. It's just formed by the erosion of the water. But they created the story that the the, the giant Finn, because he becomes a giant at some point as well, had built it. And the story is that he built it because he's also kind of pugnacious. So he builds it to have a fight with a giant in Scotland. And so he builds this big road to fight with this other guy. But then when the Scottish giant comes thundering over the horizon, he realizes he's totally unmatched. So he runs home and builds a crib and gets in it. And uh, when the Scottish giant arrives and asks for Finn, Finn's wife says, be quiet, you'll wake the baby. (laughs) And so when the Scottish giant sees the baby, he says, okay, maybe next time and goes back to Scotland. So he actually avoided the fight. In the end, it was a sort of uh, pacifistic gesture. (laughs) I like that. I think I should change my name to Finn as well. It seems like a fabulous name. (laughs) And it's kind of queer too. There's a lot of girls called Finn. It's kind of a a genderqueer, I mean. So I like that as well. Again, if I saw a Finn on the list of my students, I would make an assumption. And I, I try to actively avoid that. It's become a name. Also, why are there boys' names and girls' names, actually, when you think about it? There could be masculine names and feminine names. And they could be open to anybody, I think. But yeah, it's a lovely thing. Have another name. Choose another one. Or reinvent yourself in some way. But at every point and every day, I think we have the chance to do that. So as you're a witness on my program about what makes a meaningful life, I'd like to hear your take on what makes your life meaningful. Oh, just love, you know, in in all capacities to to give it out and to receive it. What else is there? And I don't mean necessarily romantic love, but I mean, I try to appreciate all that I have. There are many things at the moment to worry about. There are many things that could be different and could be, you know, could improve and that I could change. You know, I look around my apartment and I think of the many things I'd like to do differently or renovate or improve upon. And then I try to say, hey, you have an apartment, just cheat yourself and how privileged I am for that. I can walk with my dogs and I really try to let them sniff every leaf because they want to sniff every leaf. I try not to drag them along, you know, I try to take the time to let them do that. And I try to do it too, you know, I try to sniff the leaves a bit as well. And I try to just, yeah, breathe it all in. I can't say that I go through every minute of the day smiling, but I really try to to radiate something that I like to receive back, you know? This is not a very smiley city, Berlin, so I try to counteract that a bit. and I try to, to keep my smile, you know? And probably I will meet you in the park with my dog, which made an appearance. Hello, Pumpkin, <laughs> in this program too. Dogs help a lot. And on the love parameter, yeah, dogs are definitely up there. Uh, top priority. 
<laughs> so thank you very much for joining me. This is the part of the programme that we say goodbye. But if you are a member of our supporters club, and please do check out our Patreon funding site and become one, you get the bonus material. And the bonus material is we're going to talk about three things that Finn knows are true. So I'll say goodbye and hope that you will join us in our supporters club sometime. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.